Praise God. We want to go to the word of the Lord tonight. I would turn your attention again to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we will read one verse of scripture. We started into this last week and did not finish it. We're going to try to get it finished so we don't have to carry this into the new year. I've got other plans, Lord willing, for the coming year. The things that I feel like I need to do uh, beginning with 1st of January. Hopefully we will be able to accomplish those goals in this coming year. And so I'd like to finish this lesson. And uh, as I said last week, it's perhaps different. It may not be everyone's favorite type of message. But I am determined, I'm determined that I'm not just going to get up and preach a bunch of fluff. But I want to give you something that will nourish you. I believe that's my obligation. I believe that's my call to feed the flock of God. And you know, not all meals, not all meals are always as enjoyable as others. Sometimes we have to eat a little healthier than what we enjoy. I know everyone has plans to do that starting January 1st. Um, but there are times that we just have to buckle down and eat some things we don't necessarily enjoy eating, but it's nutritious and healthy for us. And unfortunately, life can't all be ice cream. Although, maybe it will when we get to heaven. Because that would sure be heaven for me. I got a feeling that heaven-made vanilla is going to be better than homemade vanilla. And it won't be too sweet. It won't make me sick. Hallelujah. Well, I can dream, can't I? Uh, and don't wake me up. I'm enjoying the dream. Praise God. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 18. Jesus makes this familiar statement. He said, For verily or truly I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise Pass from the law till all be fulfilled. One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So tonight we're going to give you part two of this lesson that I have entitled The Justification of Jots and Tittles. The Justification of Jots 
Tittles. Would you put your Bible down? Let's lift our voices. Let's ask the Lord to help us tonight, could we? Everybody, let's talk to the Lord right now. Come on, I want to hear you pray, saints of God. Let's talk to the Lord. Jesus, we need you. We thank you, Lord. Let's praise Him one more time. Everybody, let's praise Him. Let's praise Him. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. You will permit me to do um, a hopefully brief review. Uh, just for the sake of those who did not hear part one, although I would tell you I can't do it justice, and if you did not hear part one, we would encourage you to go back and listen. It is on the website, I assume, and uh, I haven't checked it lately. I know we've been having trouble with the website, but hopefully it's up and running and things are going well. So you can go and, and check it out there. But um, let me try to just bring you up to speed and to remind those who were here exactly why I have titled this lesson what I have titled it. I started out by saying that although most if not all of us are familiar with the verse that I read as my text, it is very likely, very likely that most of us are unfamiliar with the exact meaning of the terminology that Jesus used. We have a basic idea of what he meant when he said not one jot or tittle, but, but most of us don't really know what a jot or a tittle is. These are not words that we use in today's English language. And so they lose their meaning to us. We really become clueless as to what the Lord is really trying to tell us. And so we pointed out to you last week that the word jot is actually in the Greek the word iota, which is the eighth and smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. It is the word from which we get our English word iota. When we say, you know, that uh, I don't understand one iota, of that subject or we use that word we are talking about a very small quantity the reason that the word iota means a small quantity is because it comes to us from the Greek letter iota which is as I said the smallest of all the letters in the Greek alphabet but what we need to understand is that Matthew most likely wrote his original gospel in Hebrew. 
And he was appealing to the Hebrew mind. And therefore, he would not have been thinking in terms of the Greek letter, Iota, but instead of the Hebrew letter that corresponds with it. And that, that letter uh, is the Hebrew letter Yad. Yad. And Yad is, again, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The whole point of Jesus saying not one jot is going to fail. He's telling us that even the smallest letter in the writings that were inspired by the Holy Ghost is going to fail. We can trust everything that is in the Word of God. He then goes on to say not only the jots are not going to fail, but he said not one tittle is going to fail. That, that word comes from a Greek word that is used in reference to what is called the apex of a Hebrew letter. Now again, I don't have time to go into an in-depth Hebrew lesson, but I will tell you that, that there is in the Hebrew writing a small, very small dot, just like you would dot an I uh, in the English alphabet. It is a dot that appears either at the beginning or the end of some Hebrew letters. And whether it begins, uh, whether it is at the beginning or at the ending of the letter, changes the sound of that letter. It changes it uh, from being called sin to being called shin. And the pronunciation goes from an S to an SH. And as I pointed out last week, if you think that doesn't make any difference, all you've got to do is stop and think about the difference between the word sour and the word shower. And there's quite a difference in those two words. And so we understand that just putting a dot in the wrong place changes not only the way the word sounds, but it changes the entire meaning of the word. And Jesus is saying, not only can you trust even the smallest letter in my word, you can trust the minute dot that's placed above a letter in my word. You can put your confidence in everything that's written in the word of God. There is nothing in this book that we ought to question. There is nothing in this book that we ought to doubt. From Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 22, we ought to have absolute confidence in everything that's found in the Word of God. It's absolute. It's true. Amen. I don't want to get sidetracked today, but, and I may have said this last week, I don't remember now. But uh, as many of you know, I am preparing to go on an archaeological dig for the first time in my life. I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of research about archaeology and trying to learn what I can before I make that trip. And what I'm finding is that there are a lot of people out there that through the years have been skeptical of things in the Word of God. They've been skeptical that things existed. We did talk a little bit, I think, at the conclusion of last week's lesson about how that uh, there are those who doubted and openly stated that there was no evidence that there were even lepers alive in the area of Israel during the life of Jesus. 
And they made that claim and promoted that claim until a few years ago when an archaeologist found the remains of a man. They did a test and found on those remains that the man died of leprosy. They dated his bones to the very time of Jesus Christ, thus disproving all the critics. There are so many of these areas that I could go into that people have said there is no proof, therefore it's not real. But as I did say to you last week, please always keep in mind that the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. Do you get what I'm telling you? Just because you don't find the proof doesn't mean that is proof that it's not there. Hallelujah. And in fact, what we're finding is, give it a little bit of time. There is yet one thing in all the Word of God to ever be disproven by any form of science. Though they've tried time and time and time again. You know, we've just passed the Christmas holiday and and we sing songs like, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And many of you are not even aware that there are skeptics out there who for for years now have said that Jesus was not born in the same Bethlehem that we think of today because there was, again, no evidence of any life in that town in first century uh, Israel. And it was hard to prove because there's an entire modern city built over the ruins. And it's hard to go in and excavate underneath a city that exists. But... Just in the last few years, they found an area where they got permission to do some excavation. And lo and behold, they found things that unquestionably dated to the time of Jesus Christ, proving there was life in the city of Bethlehem at the time Jesus was born. So I'm here to tell you, church, and, and really, that's, that's the main idea of everything I want to talk about today. That is, we can trust this book we call the Bible. There is no reason for us to doubt it. We may not have the proof right now, but I'm telling you, friend, everything that's in this book is accurate. It's accurate, and we can trust it. Amen. And so that's what Jesus is telling us. Not only will the smallest letter not fail, but even the smallest dot above a letter is not going to fail. We can trust in the Word of God. Now, I I told you last week that really the application of all this is, once again, I'm asking this church to make it a part of your daily routine to read the Bible. Read it through this year. In fact, the charts are out there now. If you fell behind this year and you're not going to get it done, start early. You've got no excuse. You young people, if you've got time to play on your PS2, well, I don't know what's out there now. What's, what's the latest thing? The PS5? Um, yeah, I'm a few years behind. Xbox 12 or I don't know I don't know what's out there I I have no idea what's out there but if you've got time to play these games you've got time to read the scripture well 
If you've got time, To look at things on YouTube. You've got time to read the Bible. Well, that ought to be a hundred percent response. Every one of us. Every one of us. Need to make it a habit. To read the word of God. Now I pointed out that one of the reasons why we get discouraged. And we fall along the wayside. Is that we hit those portions of scripture. Where it's you know. So and so begat a little dab and whatever. It's you know you. You. You, you have no idea how to pronounce these names. You have no idea what they even mean. Uh, you get into genealogies. You get into rituals. You get into rules. You get into things that you're sitting there thinking, why does this matter? But again, I remind you that not one jot or tittle in the Word of God is insignificant. There's a reason why all of those things are found in the Scripture. And what I did last week was to encourage you that as you're reading through the Scripture and you come across those passages, you think, what is this even important? Why does it even matter? Why do I have to read through all of this? I want you to be challenged to think there's a reason God put this here. What is he trying to tell me? What is he trying to show me? What hidden gem may be found in the Word of God? Every one of you ought to become biblical archaeologists that you're doing your best to uncover as much truth as you can in the pages of God's Word. Well, hallelujah. Rather than just skimming through the surface and trying to check off the box every day, I'm telling you, you ought to be looking for something. You ought to be looking for a way that God can speak to you, for a way that God can show you something that's hidden away in there. There are truths that you can find. I'm only two months away. from celebrating 50 years since I preached my first message. So I've been studying the Word of God. I've been reading the Word of God for half a century. But can I tell you, I still open it up and find things I just hadn't noticed before. I still find things that will pique my curiosity. In fact, I shared with our M&M class uh, recently a, a, a verse of Scripture I've read over and over and over, quoted it, used it, but, but somehow missed something in that verse that I'd, all these years, I'd just never seen it. The blank look on your faces, you don't remember what I'm talking about. It's where the Bible said, we have an advocate With the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What I found, you remember now? 
Okay, what I found after all these years, 50 years of studying the Scripture and quoting that verse and using that verse and, and making reference to that verse, what I found just a, just a couple of weeks ago, I, I realized something I'd never noticed. That word advocate in the original Greek is paraclete, parakletos. Parakletos may not mean anything to you, but I was taught when I was in Bible college studying the Greek language. Parakletos is a word that John uses in his gospel in reference specifically to the Holy Ghost. He says in John chapter 14, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. Now King James translated it comforter, but it's parakletos. And, and the only reference, the only time this is used is in reference to the Holy Ghost. But the same writer comes along in his epistle and he says, We have a parakletos with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And what it dawned on me is that John uses this as an absolute proof that there's no difference between Jesus and the Holy Ghost. He is the parakletos. It's unfortunate that the King James translated it two different ways. I, I, I'm, I'm learning things. And this is, what, this is what this lesson, I'm really not off the subject. This is what this lesson is all about. It's to try to encourage you to dig a little deeper in the coming year. Do I take the time to share another one with you? I hadn't shared this one with you guys yet. You know, we, we've talked a lot about the Christmas story the last, last few services. And, and I, I know that some time back I blew a lot of people's nativity sets out of the water because I told you that wise men did not make it to the manger. Um, they were not there. Well, I've just recently seen something else in the Scripture that is not there. And it's because of an unfortunate translation. I don't have these notes in front of me to give you the exact verses, but I'll just tell you this, that if you're really that interested in it, just contact me and I'll, I'll, I'll find the verses for you and I'll share them with you, all right? But, but for years we've talked about how that the baby was born in the, and, and put in that manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Right? That's what Luke says. But did you know the word that's translated in is not the Greek word for in? And in fact, there's another place where Luke talks about an in. It's in, it's in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? Anybody with me? In the story of the Good Samaritan, what does the Samaritan do with the man that he finds and he takes him to help him? Where does he take him? He takes him to an inn. It's a different Greek word. And with that in, it specifically mentions the innkeeper. Now, our Christmas story is that the innkeeper told Mary and Joseph, we don't have any more rooms available. Now, first of all, Bethlehem in first century A.D. was a town of about 300 people. I doubt they had a ramada. I may be ruining a good sermon here because I, 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 I might ought to just sit on that. We might ought to just move on and let me. I may want to preach on this. 
I don't want to have to turn this jots and tittles into a third lesson. I'm, I, I, I really, but this is to me, and again, I, I don't know, Sister Bonnie, you don't even realize it, but some years ago, you paid me one of the highest compliments I think that I've ever had, and I don't remember exactly how you said it, but you just, you made a comment about how that when I preach, it's like I'm not just trying to, I forget how you said it, but but it's like I'm on, I'm on a, a journey trying to dig out what I can from the scriptures, that I'm I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find something every time that I start to teach. And I, I appreciate that very, very much. But that's the way I want everybody to be. When you get your Bible out, I, I want you to, to start looking for things, finding things. So, so the word that's translated in is not an end. And Luke only uses this word one other time in his gospel. So, so since he knows the Greek word for in, because he uses it's a different word altogether when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he knows what an in is. He uses the correct word there. When he uses this word in another place, it's at the end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, it's the last time before the Lord's death that he gathers with his disciples. The Greek word that Luke uses um, here, he uses it again when he tells them to go and find the man that's going to be carrying the water and he's going to take you to an upper room. That's the same Greek word that's used when it talks about there was no room in the, King James says, in the inn. A better translation is the guest room. So I, I still may, I may save it for a sermon, but I, I'm just, th there was no hotel in the original Christmas story. Well, hallelujah. I'm, I'm destroying everybody's. I talked about the star and Sunday service. and I mean, I'm just tearing the whole thing apart here. But at least I gave you the 25th, right? At least I didn't take that away from you. Um, I'll save my point for all that later, but... But I'm just telling you, there are things in the Word of God, saints, that if we'll take the time to dig it out, to study it, to pay attention to what's there, the treasures that are hidden there. You want to talk about a treasure hid in a field. You want to talk about something that is of great value. What we've got in this book is more precious than anything we could ever hope for. There are such beautiful truths that are hidden in the pages of this Bible of ours. 
Thank God for the story of Adam and Eve and the story of David and Goliath. Thank God for the stories we all know. But there are other things that are here that are so beautiful and so powerful and so impacting. Even down to the seemingly insignificant jots and tittles. We've talked about a couple of those. We talked last week about being able through just one verse of Scripture to nail down some things in the life of Christ as to what year it happened because Luke was careful enough to name the exact ruler in certain regions. This one was ruler here. This one was ruler here. This one was the high priest at this time. And he gave such specific detail that there's a very, very narrow window of time in which all of those things could have happened. And we just read those names and don't pay any attention to it. But what we come to understand is Luke is... This is, this is what takes this Bible from being, as many people charge, just a book of fairy tales to an actual historical document because he gives specific timelines. And producing timelines is not something you write into a fairy tale. It's too easy to prove it wrong. These men were careful, especially Luke. As a physician, he was conscientious about details. He's the one, again, that told us about the course of Abijah. And we talked about that in our podcast on Sunday night. Just little things that we skim over and don't pay any attention to that carry such significance to us. It's these jots and tittles. And so I want to give you one more tonight. We're going to go through some scriptures here in just the next few moments. And again, I hope this is not boring. But what I want to do is I want to try to instill in you such a love and such a desire to get into the Word of God. That you get this book down and begin to devour it. Well, hallelujah. All right, let's talk about another subject. And, and this is going to get into some of those quote-unquote boring details. So ride with me for just a little while here tonight. But I want to talk to you a little bit about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. Now, again, most skeptics today try to disprove the Bible based on a timeline that they have devised connecting it to the historical records of ancient Egypt. All right? The Egyptians were meticulous in, in writing out who was Pharaoh when, who succeeded that Pharaoh, how long his reign lasted. Very meticulous. There are places you can go today in Egypt where entire walls are covered with Egyptian hieroglyphics that tell the stories from one Pharaoh to the next. Timelines that are, again, meticulous. Well, somebody decided some years ago 
that if the Bible were true, it had to have happened at this point in connection with Egyptian history. And from that time forward, most quote-unquote scholars have accepted those dates. And as they've begun to dig things up, they've come to the conclusion that nothing in the Bible matches that timeline. Therefore, now you know what I would say, therefore my timeline's wrong. But that's not what they say. They say, therefore, the Bible is wrong. They couldn't possibly be wrong about their timeline. But the Bible has to be wrong because it doesn't match their timeline. Now, please remember when I say they were meticulous in writing things down and keeping track of who was Pharaoh when and for how long, please, please keep in mind they were not writing using B.C. and A.D. You, you, you do understand that, right? They didn't write this happened in 1250 B.C. They didn't know how many years it was before Christ. Does that make sense to anybody? So they're not listing dates based on B.C. and A.D. as we do in our calendar. So these quote-unquote scholars have made this determination as to what the, the comparison of biblical timeline ought to be compared to Egyptian timeline. And they say nothing matches and nothing fits. And again, if the Bible were simply, and this is what I love, if the Bible, as they claim, was simply a book of traditions that had been handed down orally, people telling somebody else from year to year, people talking about, uh, you know, telling their kids and their grandkids, and, and as they do, the story grows, and it becomes kind of like the old-fashioned game of gossip. I mean, there are really people out there that believe this. That nothing we have in the Bible really happened, but somebody, hundreds if not thousands of years after the fact, finally sat down and wrote it down, after they'd been told through family tradition. And so they don't believe anything that's in the Bible. Of course, they don't want to believe anything in the Bible. Because if they believe the Bible, that means there's a God. And if there's a God, that means they're going to answer to Him one day. And they don't want to answer to God. But I want to show you that because of these jots and tittles, the Bible is extremely accurate. Now remember that it's written over a period of, of uh, some uh, 1,500 years. Different men writing in different cities, in different locations, in different eras. And many of them independently writing down some specific thing that would give us a timeline. Now, if this is just fairy tales, if this is just oral tradition handed down, then somewhere along the way over those 1,500 years, somebody's going to mess up. Right? Somebody's going to miss it. Somebody's not going to consult with somebody else. Somebody may not even know what somebody else wrote. 
But let me show you how accurate the word of the Lord is. Is that all right? You ready to go on a journey with me here for just a few moments? Well, two of you are. The rest of you are just going to have to go whether you like it or not. I mean, you could get up and leave, but I'll have them bring me songbooks if you do. And if I can't throw far enough, these guys are fast enough to chase you, praise God. Now, as I said, while skeptics say the Bible cannot be true because it doesn't match their timeline, what happens if their timeline is wrong and we change and we move the biblical time frame to a different Egyptian era? What begins to happen at that point? Well, I want you to follow with me. Let's look at the biblical verses that provide timelines for us. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse number 1. Let's start there. You got your Bible? This is Bible study time. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziph, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, jots and tittles, right? Does anybody notice how specific this verse is? This is one of those things that we just kind of read over and don't pay any attention to. But thinking the way I'm thinking right now, I want you to pay attention. He tells us what month. He makes it clear it's the second month in the Hebrew calendar. In case somebody later wants to come along and create their own calendar. We're not talking about just anybody's calendar. We're talking about the Hebrew calendar. The second month. And he tells us it's the fourth year of Solomon's reign. And he tells us it was the 480th year after the children of Israel came out of Egypt. Now that's specific. I mean, now there are other places where we're going to read where statements are made, you know, that where it's just kind of a, you know, after 300 years or they were there for 400 years. And we're not supposed to take that as a literal number. I mean, it's like, you know, I tell people, you know, I've been here for about 30 years. Well, not exactly. You understand. And, but I'm not lying about it. We're given a ballpark figure, and there are verses where it does that. But this verse says it happened in the 480th year, not after about 480 years, but in the exact 480th year after they left Egypt. All right, you got that? Now, here's what we find. Historical records that do match up give us a date for Solomon building the temple at 966 B.C. Now this is going to get a little complicated, so stay with me. There's a problem when you're dealing with B.C. because we're talking about how many years it was before Christ. 
So the further we go, remember we're going in reverse. Right? So we're going to be adding years to 480 when we... I will not make any comments about being interrupted by a woman. That was Siri. At least she didn't call 911 like happened that one night. That did happen. It did happen. Um, so I, I just I want you to understand that when we start talking B.C., we're looking at the year Christ was born, how many years before Christ? So the further back we go, the larger the number. Right? The further backwards we go. Whereas A.D., the further backwards we go, the lower the number. Because we're closer to the year of the birth of Christ. Is everybody with me? Does that make sense? I'm afraid some of you, the look on your face, you're either asleep in a sugar coma from the holiday still or just totally lost. Um, so what we find, 966 years B.C., Solomon began building the temple. But, but the Bible is very specific that it was 480 years before that that the Israelites left Egypt. All right? So if you add 480 years to 966 BC, we get the year 1446 BC. All right? I know it's a jot and a tittle. But I want you to think about that. 1446, if this verse is right. When they left Egypt. That means they came into Canaan when? How long did they, when they left Egypt, how long did they wander? Forty years. So 1406, right? Everybody's with me? Some of you are, some of you are not. 1446. But if we're talking about they wandered 40 years by the time they get through wandering and they actually go into Canaan, puts us at 1406 B.C. We're getting closer to the birth of Christ now. So we're subtracting years. So, so that puts us at 1406, coming into the land of Canaan. 1446, leaving the land of Egypt. Now, let's go to a different book written at a different time by a different author altogether. This comes from the book of Judges, Judges chapter 11, verse 26. And what's going on here is that Jephthah is, is trying to appeal to people who want to come and take over the land of Israel. There are enemies that are wanting to overthrow them, that are wanting to run the Israelites out of the land. And Jephthah is appealing to them. 
And here's what he says in Judges 11, verse 26. While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns, and in Aurora and her towns, and in all cities that be along the coast of Arnon, 300 years, why therefore did you not recover them within that time? So Jephthah said the Israelites had been in Canaan for about 300 years. Now again, when you look at this, the way that it's written, the original language, you understand he didn't say specifically, he didn't say this is the 300th year. He's giving a round figure. Somewhere around 300 years we've been in this land and you've let us live here all this time. Why are you trying to throw us out now? After 300 years. All right? Now, again, history, we can pretty well nail down that Jephthah was somewhere, we don't have an exact date on Jephthah, but he's somewhere between 1088 and 1083. That's pretty close. That's a five-year window. So we're pretty close on those dates. So let's take the lower number, and we'll say 1083. If we add 300 years, we end up at 13. 88. Do you know what that is? That's 18 years difference between the number we got from Solomon's temple to the number we're now getting from Jephthah, who was hundreds of years before Solomon. In fact, based on the scripture, it was of almost 200 years before Solomon is when Jephthah, because Solomon said 480, or it was said about Solomon 480, Jephthah said it's been about 300. So that's 180 years. Now, if history's right and Jephthah is somewhere around 1083 and we add 300 years, that brings us to 1388, which is only 18 years away from the date that we got from Solomon. That's not a huge amount of time difference, especially when Jephthah wasn't giving us a specific date, and especially when we don't have the specific date for Jephthah's speech. Are you with me? So we're very close in these two timelines. But let's go to a third timeline, this one found in 1 Chronicles. And this is where those genealogies start mattering. So, here we go, Brother Goff. Pronounce them to the best of your ability. Nobody will know the difference anyhow. And these are they that waited with their children, of the sons of this the Kohathites. 1 Chronicles 6, verses 33 to 38. Of the sons of the Kohathites, Heman a singer, the son of Joel, the son of Shimeon, the son of Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Eliu, the son of Toa, the son of Zaph, the son of Elkanah, the son of Mahath, the son of Amasai, the son of Elkanah, the son of Joel, the son of Azariah, the son of Zephaniah, the son of Tohath, the son of Azur, the son of Abiasaph, the son of Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, the son of Israel. All right, now, so what? I'll tell you so what. There are specifically listed in this passage 18 generations. 
that are listed from the time of Moses until the time of David. All right? We've traced this back the very end of verse 38. The son of Kohath, the son of Levi, the son of Israel or Jacob. So Kohath, Kohath was one of the sons of Levi. We're tracing this all the way back. We're going all the way back 18 generations. But we're only tracing it now in 1 Chronicles to the time of David. Our first passage we read traced it to the time of who? The first verse we read in, in Kings. We're talking about 480 years since what? Solomon. I know this gets confusing. Solomon in the first one. Solomon is the son of David. So if we're going from Moses to David and we've got 18 generations, now we're adding Solomon to it, we end up with 19 generations. Right? Scholars agree that the average for a generation is 25 years. So you take 25 years times 19 generations. And you get a total of 475 years from Moses to Solomon. 475 to the time of Solomon. It was in the fourth year of Solomon's reign when he built the temple. And it was said that was the 480th year. You add the four years of Solomon's reign to the 475 years listed here. And you get 479. And at the end of that year, what begins? The 480th year since they left. Different author, different time. Gives us the same timeline. That's not all. Let's go to the prophet Ezekiel. He now is living during the time of Babylonian conquest. Ezekiel chapter 40 and verse 1. And again, pay attention to how specific Ezekiel is. Ezekiel 40 verse 1. In the five and twentieth year of our in captivity. In the five and twentieth year of our captivity. In the beginning, in the of, the beginning year, of the year. In the tenth day of the month. In the tenth day of the month. In the fourteenth year. In the year. After the, after after the city, city was, smitten, was smitten. In the selfsame day the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me thither. You think Ezekiel wasn't giving us an exact time when all this happened? I mean, he's nailing it down. He's making sure we don't make any mistakes. This was in the 25th year of their captivity. It was the beginning of the year. It was the 10th day of the first month. It was the 14th year after Jerusalem had been, had been smitten. 
And on that day, the tenth day of the first month. Now, why would he point out the tenth day of the first month? Because the tenth day of the first month was the day of atonement. Now, this writing indicates to us, with it being the tenth day of the first month and the fourteenth year after Jerusalem was smitten, the twenty-fifth year of the captivity in Babylon, we know from rabbinical writings that this was a jubilee year. Does anybody know what happened, how you figure the jubilee years? Every fiftieth year was a year of jubilee. But the jubilee cycle was 49 years. The 50th year was the jubilee. But that 50th year, which was jubilee, also started the first year of the next 49-year cycle. So you can figure, according to rabbinical teachings, they say that this took place in the 16th Jubilee cycle. 16 cycles of 49 years. The rabbinical teachings show us that this took place in 622 B.C. 16 Jubilee cycles times 49 years per cycle gives us 784 years. So if you add 784 years to the year 622 B.C. We're going back in time. You add 784 years to the first Jubilee. The first Jubilee was the year they left Egypt. The first year of the first Jubilee cycle was the year they left Egypt. Is everybody with me? Am I making sense? So we're going to go back 16 cycles at 49 years each. That's 784 years. When you add 784 years to 622 B.C., guess what year you get? 1406. The very year that was provided as to when Israel came in or, or left, uh, came into Canaan, the very year that they came into Canaan, that was the year that Solomon had provided as the year of entry, 1406. You add 40 years for wandering. And you get them leaving Egypt in 1446 B.C. Now we're not finished yet. I know some of you wish I was. But I just want to show you really how important these little jots and tittles are. Especially to the skeptics. Let's go now to the New Testament. We're going to go to the book of Acts. 
Now again, I want to remind you that the amount of difference in the time in which each witness was written. One was almost 500 years after the Exodus. Another was about 300 years after. Another was almost 800 years after. And now we are going to find a witness that comes about 1,450 years after they leave Egypt. We're talking almost 1,500 years difference in time here. Let's consider the testimony of a man by the name of Stephen. Does that name sound familiar? Stephen's preaching along. We kind of ignore what he had to say because he was a long-winded preacher kind of like me. And he's preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching. I mean, he starts back at the beginning and takes these Jews all the way through their history. But Stephen was a brilliant man. And Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, tells us something we need to know. Acts chapter 7, verses 29 and 30. Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, uh -huh. where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. All right, now here's what's interesting. According to Stephen, Moses spent forty years in Midian. And he went back, he went back to Egypt after a 40-year period. Now, he went back at the time of the Exodus. Are you with me? When he went back, it was to confront the Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Stephen lets us know that this was after 40 years in Midian. Now, let's compare that to Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried. And their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. All right. Now, the king of Egypt died, and there was a new king that comes on the throne. That's chapter 2. This is the Pharaoh that is ruling when Moses is born. The first Pharaoh had died. A new Pharaoh takes over the throne. He's the Pharaoh. The new one is the one that's ruling when Moses is born. The new one is the one who has all of the babies put to death. And Moses is thrown into the river. That's the new one. That's the one Moses was raised under. That's the one that sought to kill Moses because he had killed an Egyptian, that's the one that Moses ran away from. All right? Moses was gone 40 years. When did he go back? Here's what it said, Exodus 4, verse 19. And the Lord said unto Moses and Midian, Go, return into Egypt, for all the men are dead which sought thy life. And so here... We find out that what motivated Moses to go back, the Lord said go back because those that wanted to kill you are now dead. So the Pharaoh that took the throne when Moses was born is now dead. How long was Moses in Midian? Forty years. So how long did this Pharaoh have to reign? Forty years. Right? At least forty years. He was reigning... When Moses was born, 
He died, and God sent Moses back. And that was a period of 40 years. So there, the Pharaoh that was the, 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 the Pharaoh at the time of Moses' birth had to have reigned for 40 years. Now here's the interesting thing, and here's why the scholars and skeptics have gotten it wrong. Because in all this detailed Egyptian history, there are only two pharaohs that ever reigned for at least 40 years. That makes it pretty significant, doesn't it? Because that kind of nails it down, that it's one of these two guys. So, when you go back and start reading through all of these Egyptian timelines and details, you've got to find a Pharaoh who serves for at least 40 years. Only two of them existed. He dies, and another Pharaoh takes the throne. That's the Pharaoh Moses went back to meet. A lot of people think that Moses went back and saw the same Pharaoh it's not the same Pharaoh. All right? Pharaoh just kind of means king. It's not the same guy. He's going back to see a different Pharaoh. So he goes back to see another Pharaoh. This Pharaoh has taken the throne. His predecessor had to have served 40 years. Now what else do we know about the Pharaoh who's ruling when Moses goes back? Is there any other details that we know about him? Yeah, we, we know that there's something that happens. Exodus chapter 11, verse 5. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. Look, I'm talking about jots and tittles tonight, and I know this is boring some of you, but, but let, me, let me just let me tell you, here's what's so beautiful about all this. We know that the Pharaoh who was ruling, when Moses approached him. We could call him the Pharaoh of the oppression. He's the one that made things worse on the children of Israel. All right, so we'll call him the Pharaoh of the oppression, the Pharaoh of the exodus, all right? What we know is, according to this verse of Scripture, that even his firstborn died. So when we find the right Pharaoh, we got to find, number one, that his predecessor served for over 40 years. And number two, he was not succeeded by his own son. Or at least not his firstborn son. Well, only one of the two pharaohs in all of Egypt's timeline meets both of those criteria. And it's not the one the skeptics try to nail it down on. It's not Pharaoh Ramses, if any of you have paid any attention to any of that. That's not the pharaoh. He doesn't fit these two qualifications. So that one thing alone, if we're going to trust the Bible at all, that one thing alone disqualifies Pharaoh Ramses. That's why jots and tittles matter. 
So in all of Egypt's history, only one of the two pharaohs had a 40-year, had had his predecessor serving 40 years, and he, he was not succeeded by his firstborn son. And that period of time, get this, the period of time in which that pharaoh reigned was from 1506 to 1452. That's, that's the one that reigned 40 years. 1452, he dies. The throne is assumed somewhere around 1453 to 1455, somewhere in that time frame, his successor, who was not his firstborn son, was ruling and reigning from 1455 to 1418, and we said Moses left Egypt in 1446. That puts us right in the middle of this Pharaoh's reign. Now, I know some of you think that Pharaoh died in the Red Sea. That's another study for another day. It's another one of those jots and tittles that Scripture doesn't say specifically that Pharaoh died in the Red Sea. His army was overthrown in the Red Sea. And according to the Egyptian records that we find, he didn't die. But we do find records where his army was completely depleted during that time. In fact, I don't have time to get into this, but there's actually a non-biblical writing from that time that talks about a very interesting thing that took place when the slaves were suddenly collecting all of the gold and jewels from the rich. And that disease had rained down upon the people. And that the stranger left with a high hand. Now the skeptics say there's no way that refers to the Exodus because it's the wrong time period. But I submit to you when you start lining it up to the biblical time period, it's exactly right. And it matches perfectly. This, my friends, is the reason why these jots and tittles matter. That's why they're so important to us. In fact, I mentioned a while ago that, that this, this archaeological dig that I'm, I'm getting ready to go on, you know that they just recently found a scarab. That doesn't mean much to, to many of you. When you start studying archaeology, you find out how important these scarabs were. They, they were little um, carvings uh, that represented a particular pharaoh. Every pharaoh had his own scarab, which was a kind of beetle, but it, it, it represented certain things, and each one was carved in a certain way. And you can tell when you look at that scarab which pharaoh is represented. And would you believe that while they've been digging at Shiloh, which is the place, by the way, for those of you who don't know, that's where I'm going to be digging in May of this next coming year. But at Shiloh is where they put up the, the, the tabernacle that they'd carried through the wilderness for 40 years. When they came into the land of, of Canaan, they set up the tabernacle on a permanent basis at Shiloh, long before the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem was not even their city at this time. But they set up the tabernacle at Shiloh. So Shiloh is one of the first cities they settle in. And you know what they just found at Shiloh? A scarab from the very Pharaoh that this timeline matches. That obviously one of those Israelites had carried that scarab with them. 
Now, I, I'm just, I know, I know, some of you are so bored right now, but, but let me just tell you, there is a reason why every jot and every tittle is in the Word of God. There is a purpose and a significance in everything that's found in the Scriptures. I've got to close. I'm over 9 o'clock. But let me give you one more witness before we're done here. We're going to go now to our sixth and final witness, also from the book of Acts. Now we're talking about the Apostle Paul. Let's go to Acts chapter 13, verses 19 to 20. And when, they had, when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave them judges about the space of 450 well, years. Well, listen to this. He gave them judges for how long? 450 for years. For about 450 years. Now, uh, it said until Samuel, Samuel the, prophet. the prophet. Now, now listen, Paul did not say exactly 450 years, but he did say that the period of time from the conquest until Samuel was about 450 years. Solomon was David's successor. They said Solomon started building the temple in the 480th year after they had come out. Paul now testifies that until the time of Samuel, Samuel anointed King Saul and anointed King David, the father of Solomon. David reigned for 40 years. Well, praise God. So about 450 years from the time they entered into Canaan until the time of Samuel the prophet, we line up once again exactly with everything. Every scripture we find, the timeline is perfect. It's accurate. Listen, I'm telling you, you may not think that these genealogies and chronologies and time periods and days and months and years mean anything, but, but I'm telling you, friend, they mean a whole lot because time after time, God is just showing us the veracity of His Word. We can trust the Word of God. We can depend on the Word of God. There's not one mistake from covered cover. There's not one thing that's written in accident. There's not one jot and not one tittle of all of the scripture that's going to pass away. We can count on everything. Every scripture is God breathed. Every scripture has been given us to, uh, to us by God himself. Let's stand tonight. So I'm telling you, we may think things like genealogies and chronologies, timelines, days and months and years are insignificant. I'm telling you, they are very significant when it comes to proving the truth of the Word of God. The jots and the tittles give us undeniable truth that God's Word can be trusted. His Word can be depended on. No wonder Jesus said what He did in His final prayer in that upper room when He said, Thy Word is truth. From cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, everything in that book is absolute 
absolute, unwavering, indisputable truth. Aren't you glad for it tonight? Why don't we gather around? Let's come and thank God for His Word. Can we do that? I don't know of a better way for us to close this year than to do it by honoring the Word of God, especially at the Truth Church. I think we ought to thank God that we can depend on His Word. I think the next time we open the pages of that book, you read some promise there, friend, just remember, every jot and every tittle has a purpose. It has a meaning. It has significance. God doesn't put those things in His Word if He doesn't intend to honor them. God doesn't put those things in the Scripture if He doesn't plan to stand behind it. It's all true. It's all right. Hallelujah. It's all accurate. We can trust the Word of God. Why don't we spend some time thanking God for His Word right now? Can we do that? Everybody, let's give thanks to God for the truth of His Word.